0: Well, this morning, we turn to the prophet Nahum as we continue our series, Walk Through the Bible, Introduction to the Holy Scriptures Book by Book. But before we get into it, I just want to say a special note, because I know we have a lot of visitors here this morning, that uh, in God's providence, we have a lot of doom and gloom this morning, but we are simply following God's Word through Scripture. So we've been doing a series going preaching one message on each book of the Bible. And this morning we're in the Minor Prophets, so we're almost through the Old Testament, and we're now in the prophet Nahum. But some of you might think what we're doing is rather odd. And I think maybe from an outward perspective it kind of is, isn't it? We are, we are people who on a beautiful day like this rather than going skiing or playing outside, gather to sing songs that were written some 3,000 years ago and to listen to words spoken 2,000 or more years ago. And it is rather kind of odd, isn't it? And in our society today, uh, there's a great book uh, called The Secular Age, we have live. We now live in a culture. If if like society was a house, and the earthly plane, the things we could see were here on the main floor, and then the Andra Atasha, the second floor, was God. The things that are unseen. We live in a world today where we just pretend that that upper story of the house doesn't exist. We just we don't walk up there, and so it seems rather. Odd in in, in the in the balance of time, it's quite striking. We live in an age that denies that there is a second story to our house, but we believe that God, through the course of time, speaks, and that God saves, and that God even uses hard messages as we're coming, as we've seen a lot, as we've been working as a church family through the minor prophets. He uses even hard words to save and to give hope to his people. So I hope that you will tune your ear to the upper story of God who speaks even today through words prophesied long ago. And that's what we're doing as a church family as we work through the Bible book by book. So today we find ourselves in the book of Nahum, and I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Nahum, and uh, this is an overview series, so I'm going to be pointing to things along the way just to give you uh, an overview of the book, and if you'd like to study more, you're welcome to look on page 7 of the worship folder, which has an overview of the book and an outline of what we find in the prophet Nahum. So let's now turn to the word of God. In the prophet Nahum, we learn the reality and the truth that God takes down nations in real time and space, not just at the last judgment. So it's a common misconception that judgment is just something that happens at the last day when the Lord returns. But this is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, God exalts, humbles, And even destroys nations here and now. And he has done so throughout world history. So yes, there will be a great and final judgment at the end of days. But God renders geopolitical judgments on nations even now. I saw an infographic this week that showed the rise and fall of empires over four thousand years it was it was a really long picture that kind of with color showed the flow of empires swelling and then imploding and It was truly astonishing to see the the thousands of dynasties and empires and countries that have risen and fallen over the course of 4,000. It really puts our own time in perspective when we look at that wide sweep of time. And as I looked at that infographic, I saw one empire in particular which directly connects to the prophet Nahum, and that was the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire. And we're going to look at this, the rise and fall of this empire through the prophet's eyes this morning. So, we continue our walk through the Bible series now in the book of Nahum. And we are going to see that the central focus of Nahum's message was the complete destruction of the Assyrian Empire, one of these empires in that list of 4,000 years on the infographic. Nahum says that the Assyrian Empire will be destroyed and that it is God who is going to do it. Now my question is, why should we listen to this prophet? Again, going back to what I said at the beginning, why listen to something uttered 2,500 or more years ago? What in the world does that have to do with us? I want to give you two reasons to listen this morning. First, we live in a nation that lives and dies at God's bidding. Whether it's Norway or the, we're an international church, so we have people who come from a lot of different countries, our countries exist at God's bidding, and they will fall just as quickly by his pleasure. Again, you only have to look at that infographic to see the reality of that. Modern nations that reject God's moral order will be humbled or destroyed. So this gives our nation and us as citizens or residents a life and death reason to listen to Nahum. But a second reason to listen is that the Bible applies this reality of God's wrath on nations to individual people who reject Jesus Christ. And we're going to Turn to Hebrews 10 later this morning to see that reality. And we read it in our scripture reading this morning. That same wrath that God has promised on nations that walk away from him, he also promises to individuals who walk away from him as well. And in order to find hope, we also first need to understand that reality. Because there is hope and there is a way out of the destruction that is promised for unbelievers. The Bible's message in Nahum is that God's wrath comes upon states, nations, and empires that reject his moral order. Let me say that again. God's wrath will come upon states, nations, and empires that reject his moral order. And the same fate will fall on all people who reject Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in a wider reflection on what the Bible teaches about the wrath of God and salvation from it. We're going to consider this theme of God's wrath on nations in three parts this morning. First, we're going to look that God promises wrath for Assyria. Second, we'll look that God promises wrath for all unbelievers. But thirdly, And the good news is that God promises good news for his people and his people in every age. And so we're going to deal with the uncomfortable realities of the prophet in the first two points. And then the prophet's going to give us a hint of good news that will point us to the New Testament, and that's where we will conclude. So first, God promises wrath for Assyria. Now, I don't know how much you know about ancient Near Eastern history, but Assyria was a brutal, a brutal empire. They were known for their sadism. Do you know that word a sadist? It's somebody who takes pleasure in inflicting pain. The Assyrians were sadists. Archaeologists have discovered carved reliefs in, in rocks and walls of their torture practices. Aside from hanging, piercing people on poles to die slow, painful deaths and beheadings, they would skin prisoners alive. And moreover, some evidence suggests that they also did this as religious worship. They were a wicked people. A wicked people. So it is with good reason I would say that the Israelites despise them. I mean, I think all of us, if like Sweden was doing that, I think we would have good reason to despise the Swedes, right? Knowing a little bit of Norwegian history, there might be other reasons to do so, but we, we will love the Swedes uh, as well. They're not the Assyrians. Uh, I actually have Norwegian and Swedish blood, so the conflict rages within me. Uh, LAUGHTER But at any rate, it was remarkable that despite Assyria's wickedness, that God first came to Assyria not with wrath, but with a call to repentance. A hundred years before Nahum, the prophet Jonah goes to preach a message of judgment, but one that even Jonah knew would lead to their repentance. So God sent Jonah to Nineveh. And the Ninevites, one of the chief cities within Assyria, they repented. They they tore their garments. They they sat in sackcloth and ashes. They turned to the Lord for a season. But now in Am's day, we realize that that was a short-lived revival, and Assyria went back to their wicked ways. And in 722 BC, God used Assyria to punish Israel. That who themselves were walking away from the Lord. But now it's time for God to take Assyria down. And so he sends the prophet Nahum. Nahum speaks for the whole empire when he describes Nineveh as in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1, that bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. We are told that Assyria, in in chapter 1, plotted evil against the Lord. Further, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, God calls them vile idolaters. They're a gateway for the worthless. And he condemns them for the propagation of their sexual deviance, as the prophet says in chapter 3, verse 4, for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. It is interesting that the hallmark of a godly nation is sexual immorality, is walking away from God's ordained purpose for sex. And Nineveh not only enjoyed their deviance, their whorings, and their prostitutions, but they shared it and encouraged it among all the nations that they were conquering. And for all this, the Lord's wrath against Nineveh is certain. The prophet begins in his book by announcing God's supremacy over the wicked. There's no getting away from God. In verse 2 of chapter 1, we read, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And then down in verse 6, he says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Now as we turn to the reality that God's wrath is is set against all nations like this, in this moment, God's full wrath is set against Assyria in real time and space. In chapter 1, verse 9, Nahum says of Assyria that God will make of them a complete end. And you look at that infographic that I saw, Assyria rose and fell, and they were no more. God was going to make a complete end of their nation and their empire. In chapter 2, verse 10, he cries, Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. And in verse 13, he says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. That's their soldiers and young men. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. And the question then is, well, what are the surrounding nations going to do at the fall of Assyria? we're told they're going to rejoice. They're going to rise and delight in Assyria's humiliation. In chapter 3, verse 19, All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So Assyria was a factory of unceasing evil that spread its terror, its immorality, and its wickedness wide. And far, as far as Egypt, they conquered everything in the ancient Near Eastern world. And the summation of Assyria, according to God, is that they were a nation of unceasing evil. And so God is bringing them down. And this is God's policy over nations then and now. As we reflect on the scriptures more broadly, we see that God is sovereign over, that means he's, he's all-powerful, over the rise and the fall of kings and nations. Uh, for example, in the book of Daniel, when God's people are under the rule of Babylon, Daniel proclaims in Daniel 2.21 that it is God who removes kings and sets up kings. He's the one who does it. He, he takes them down and he raises them up. And the Lord's policy in this is mercy for those who repent and destruction for those who rebel. If you want to study this more deeply, I would encourage you to write this reference down. Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 18 verses 7 to 10. Here we see God's policy over nations, geopolitical entities, In real time and space. He says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That is, he will show mercy. But then he goes on and says, And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So in other words, God's policy over geopolitical entities, whether that's Assyria or America or Norway or South Africa or whatever country you are from, If God pronounces doom and judgment on that nation and they repent, God will forgive them and bring blessing on the nation. But if God has given blessing to a nation, a nation that once acknowledged God as creator and Christ as Lord, and they walk away from that, God will not keep the blessings flowing. But he will bring desolation and ruin. Jeremiah 18:7 to10 is a very important text, understanding God's policy for geopolitical states in His creation. So in other words, God's policy over nations should strike fear in our hearts. As citizens of geopolitical countries, it should strike fear in the heart of the nations of the West. I speak primarily of the West because that's what I know the best. This is true of the whole creation, but I will speak more of what I know. As an example, think about Norway. God has privileged Norway with the gospel for almost a thousand years. I think 2037 might be the 1000th anniversary uh, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but for almost a thousand years, this nation has had the gospel. I'm living proof of that as my Norwegian and Swedish ancestors took the gospel to the new world in America and established churches there. I grew up in a denomin- a church denomination that was started by Norwegian and Swedish immigrants Together, called the Evangelical Free Church in America, what it became known as. I'm, I'm an heir of that same fruit. But think about it. Whether it's Norway or America or the West in general, the West, by and large, is walking away from Christ and walking away from God. And we've had this blessing for thousands of years in the West. And we're choosing to reject it. In fact, we're choosing to call it evil. And we're deluding ourselves, thinking that the blessings that we enjoy in society are the fruit of our own making, when in fact it has been God blessing us by the gospel. By way of an illustration, I've been reading a book called Why We Sleep, I've been by nature a very bad sleeper, so it's a very timely book for me to read by Dr. Matthew Walker. Uh, It's a game-changing book for those who wish to live a happy and healthy life. Uh, The book demonstrates, uh, through just a, a number of scientific studies, the integral role that sleep plays in keeping us alive and well. And as Westerners who are fueled by caffeine and screens, we would do well to read this as the rate of Alzheimer's disease and cancer is going through the roof. Sleep is vital to our well-being. So he shows from scientific studies how Alzheimer's, heart attacks, a myriad of, uh, whether it's bipolar or a myriad of other ailments that afflict our culture in rising rates have to do with our lack of sleep. I would say, as he would say, our caffeine-fueled society. So Dr. Walker calls caffeine a masking agent. It's a, it's a masking agent. He says that it's the equivalent of sticking your fingers in your ears to shut out the sounds of your brain telling you that you're tired. So caffeine doesn't give you more energy. That's, that's a myth. All caffeine does is it, it blocks our receptors in our brain telling us to go to sleep when we need to. And so it's a masking agent. We're refusing to listen to our brains and we're killing ourselves off in the process. I would really encourage you to read that book. But by way of illustration, that is what the nations of the West are doing with God's moral law. They're sticking their fingers in their national ears saying, no, 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 it's not there. Or like I said, with the two-story building, oh, that second story doesn't exist. God's not there. They're masking the truth for a lie and acting as if God is not watching. The nations of the West are like a toddler who thinks that if their face is covered, no one can see them. You know, my, my kids aren't as little as they used to be. But they would, they would like run and hide in the corner and then like do this, and they would play in hide-and-seek, and they would think that I couldn't see them. That's what the, the nations of the West are doing, denying God's existence. They're running around, I can't hear you. You're not there. And we're killing ourselves and our countries in the process. Let's turn now to the second point. We've, we've seen God, that, that God promises wrath for Assyria. But as we reflect on the Bible more broadly, God promises wrath for all unbelievers. Once again, God's unchanging character is on display at the start of Nahum's message. Remember, Nahum's message begins, verse 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. And keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Note particularly the phrase in verse 2 God keeps wrath for his enemies. And in verse 3, while the Lord is slow to anger, he will by no means clear the guilty. You know, as we turn to the New Testament, and these these themes continue, it's a misconception that the God of the Old Testament was an evil avenging God and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. No, God was equally merciful and gracious both in the Old Testament as the New Testament. And God is equally wrathful in the New Testament as he was in the Old Testament. Did you know that Jesus, for example, talked more about hell than any other time in Scripture? And as we come to uh, Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 1, the Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Indeed, it says that all mankind has suppressed the truth about God about his power and his nature, which are clearly seen in creation. So Paul's saying in Romans 1 that we're, we're suppressing the truth by plugging our ears or covering our faces or denying that the second story of the house exists, that there's any God at all. And in chapter 3 of Romans, Paul says that this God-suppressing fact leads to the conclusion that the whole world is accountable to him. Those who reject God are what the Bible calls children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. This is why the Bible teaches that there are ultimately only two kinds of people in the world. We tend to divide people by race or ethnicity or country or land, but Scripture divides people in half. There's two kinds of people, spiritually speaking. There are children of God or children of the devil. John says in 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So this leads then to an important point for us in this message. Even though the world has largely rejected God. There are still those who claim to be a Christian, kind of. Let me let me explain what I what I mean by that. I, I would say there's kind of, from a the from perception, three groups of people. There are just people that are unbelievers. There are. The children of God, or the the church, the people of God. And in the middle, there's a group of people that externally identify with Christianity for one reason or another, but don't actually practice the faith at all. They are sometimes called carnal Christians or cultural Christians. These are people who don't practice the faith, but they hang on to the label. might maybe for an insurance policy to make sure they're right with God, or maybe it's just simply an expression of cultural heritage or something like that. Cultural, you can call them carnal Christians, cultural Christians, external Christians, but they have no living faith. And the Bible warns us about living that way, where we live calling ourselves a Christian but walking away from the substance of it. And the Bible actually says that. If you're an external Christian only with no living act of faith, that you are no better off than unbelievers. God's wrath is pending just as much for cultural Christians as it is for unbelievers. It, indeed, actually, the Bible says that it is worse. So this is a a scary and sobering reality, and I hope that it sets in for each of us, because we all can become in danger to this. Again, remember, as we baptized Timoteus this morning, we said that the act of baptism is not an act of salvation that now happens wherein he can live however he wants for the rest of his life. And we've asked Peter and Elizabeth to point him to Christ, to pres- persevere in the faith. God doesn't care so much how well we begin. He cares about how we end. Do we hold fast to our faith in Jesus? When we turn to the book of Hebrews, we discover this scary reality and warning. In Hebrews 10, we are exhorted to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That is, hold fast to the faith of Jesus Christ hold fast to the gospel that Jesus is our peace with God that he's our salvation from God's wrath but then comes a sober warning and i would encourage you to write this verse down and meditate on it hebrews 10:26 hebrews 10:26 for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The Bible teaches that if we walk away from a living and active faith in Jesus, we are without hope. In fact, the same judgment is in store for us as just raw pagan unbelievers. Again, in verse Twenty-seven, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And in fact, the punishment for those who walk away from Jesus is is in fact worse. In verse 29 of Hebrews 10, he goes on saying, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay and again the lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god so how much worse is the punishment for those who have maintained an external affiliation with Christianity, but no longer a living act of faith or those who have walked away from Jesus altogether. You know, when I was uh, preparing to move here with my family, I was talking to Norwegians and just getting to know the culture. What's, what's the Christian culture like in Norway? Because from at least from the American perspective, Norway really looks like a Christian nation. The, the perspective, in the, in the, in, from America at least, is that Norway is a very Christian nation. As I talked to Peter and I talked to other Norwegians and I also looked at studies, I found some interesting interesting facts that, that I found alarming. One, at the time, I don't know what the numbers are now, but at the time I looked, I think 70-some percent of Norwegians were registered church members of Denorska kirke of the state church. And from that perspective, it looks like Norway is thoroughly Christianized. But then I saw other numbers uh, reporting on, this was specifically Donorska Cirka, but only 2% of that 70% regularly attend church at at any regular basis. And I found that quite alarming, because if there is a living act of faith, surely there would also be attendance commensurate to that percentage and so I don't know why, why individuals in this country, we don't have a state church or in America, so it's, it's different from my culture, but I don't know all the reasons for belonging to the state church. Uh, and, and I don't pretend to know any individual's reasons for doing that or any other church for that matter because church attendance is exceedingly low in this country. But the Bible is clear that if we merely have an external faith, where for whatever reason we call ourselves Christian, but don't have a living and active faith, whether you're Lutheran or Presbyterian or Pentecostal, whatever you are, there's no hope in Jesus, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. It's interesting that, and we don't have time to explain all of it, but if you continue in Hebrews 10, Right before the warning of judgment is the exhortation to not forsake the regular assembling as the body of Christ. As the writer of Hebrews says, as is the habit of some. And we certainly know in our culture today, the habit of most is to not gather. And that's actually a chief sign of unbelief. So I've, I've encouraged you to write down Hebrews 10. Uh, in that passage, and you can study that more on your own. But I would exhort everyone here, no matter what, whether you're Lutheran or Presbyterian or Pentecostal, whatever your background is, don't, don't be like the caffeine addict that masks their need for sleep by just guzzling caffeine, the one who puts their fingers in their ear to refuse to listen, or the one that denies that the upper story of God exists at all. Like the child who thinks if they cover their face, nothing else exists and no one can see them. I want to just briefly then conclude with the promise of good news for God's people. We just have a hint in Nahum of the good news. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And then down in verse 15, God promises deliverance for his people. And he says, in light of that deliverance, he says, keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. That is, continue your God-given religious worship. And we do that in a generation of darkness. We keep the feasts and our vows by gathering as the people of God, expressing our living, active faith. And for those who do, there is hope. For no matter what sin you have done, there is hope in Jesus Christ for those who turn to him and practice a living and active faith. Our means of salvation from God's wrath is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to end with the gospel, Romans 5 8 9. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. And here's the theme from this morning. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I said at the beginning that For over 4,000 years, God has been raising and leveling empires and nations. But the hope that we cling to, the hope that we celebrate during the season of Christmas, is that God is also building a kingdom. God is building a kingdom comprised of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he is building a kingdom in our Lord Jesus Christ that shall never be leveled and never shaken. And we're given glimmers of that hope in Nahum, and it's expressed fully as we come to the pages of the New Testament. And I would say also it's not entirely extinguished in Norway either. I pray that the Lord would use this season, it would use us, as a means of revival and rebuilding and expanding his kingdom in this country and far beyond. Do you know that Norway used to be a world leader in global missions? Did the, the Lord used, the advent I think, the adventurous Viking spirit of Norwegians to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I pray that it would once more and that we would take it to our homes and our workplaces and to the our families and friends, and that the Lord would bring revival. And I I, I heard a glimpse of it last night. at uh, I was at the state church in Tanongar, which is where I live, and a gospel choir was singing. And the gospel was preached. I don't know how people responded to it. But the gospel was, was sung in power. I know at least one member of the choir is a Christian because she's a member of this church who invited my family to attend. The gospel was preached, but the question is, will you hear it? And will you join in the singing? It's been a delight to have a lot of new faces in the service this morning. And I pray God's blessing on you. And know personally that uh, my family has a great love for the Moy clan uh, because of our relationship with Peter and Elizabeth. And I pray for God's blessing on you as well, as well as the whole church family. And when the gospel is singing, my question to you is, will you pull fingers out of your ears, all of us, to hear and join in the singing? Let's pray.